Welcome to Classical Ideas. I am Greg Soden. This episode is my seventh in a miniseries focusing on the scholarship of the 2019 Sacred Rights Cohort. Sacred Rights provides support, resources, and networks for scholars of religion committed to translating the significance of their research to a broader audience. I highly recommend checking out their fantastic work at Twitter at sacred underscore rights or online at sacred-rights.org. My guest on this episode is Dr. Brett Crutch. Since this series seeks to feature the voices of scholars who are dedicated to reaching a wider audience in their scholarship, Brett Crutch is someone I think everyone should know. He is the host of the Revealer podcast, produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU, and also is the editor at the Revealer magazine, a monthly publication that explores religion and its many roles in society and people's lives. After you hear this episode's peek behind the curtain into the operations at The Revealer, I highly recommend checking out Crutch's podcast interviews with Dr. Tia Pratt, Dr. Sharina Gandhi, and journalist Michael O'Loughlin. You can find The Revealer at therevealer.org or on Twitter at the underscore revealer. Dr. Crutch is also known in the field as a scholar of LGBTQ history and the author of Dying to be Normal, Gay Martyrs and the Transformation of American Sexual Politics from Oxford University Press. The book examines intersections of religion, sexuality, gender, race, and politics in the United States. Queer issues in religion is a burgeoning field that I feel I'm just beginning to dive into, and I'm so happy to have Brett Crutch's voice included on this show. A few more episodes I've done that complement this episode are episode 136 with Dr. Chris Babbitts and episode 34 with Dr. Melissa Wilcox. If you like this show, you can find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas. You can find Dr. Brett Crutch on Twitter at Brett Crutch, spelled K-R-U-T-Z-S-C-H. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Brett Crutch. Dr. Brett Crutch, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm delighted to have you here. Can you introduce yourself however you see fit to the audience? Sure. I'm Brett Crutch. I'm a scholar of religion at NYU and the Center for Religion and Media, where I serve as editor of an online monthly magazine called The Revealer uh, and host of the new Revealer podcast and teach in NYU's Department of Religious Studies on classes, classes on American religion. And I primarily write about religion and LGBTQ history. Perfect. Well, I want to know a little bit about that range of interests. I'm curious about your academic trajectory, your path. Uh, What were some of the turning points in your life that led you down this professional path that you have found yourself uh, reading and researching about? Sure. I became interested in the study of religion as a first-year student in high school. I went to a school where world religions was a required course for um, all students in their first year. And uh, it was taught by a very demanding teacher, which I respond to well. (laughs) And um, even though it's not, I don't, I'm not quite as intense as this person in the classroom, but uh, that's what started my interest. And then Uh, I went to Emory University for undergrad, initially thinking I wanted to go into international politics, but religion classes kept 
being what I was most interested in. So I majored in religion. And, and then I did what I don't advise uh, many people to do, and that's I, I went straight into graduate school. Uh, I went to Harvard Divinity School to continue studying religion. And this was 2002, and I knew that I wanted to look at queer issues in religion, but no one um, at Harvard at the time had any idea what that would mean, what it would look like. Um, I mean, it just produced more confusion for everyone, including myself. So I left after a year. Um, I'm a Harvard dropout. And, mm, nice. Uh, yes, thank you. And I moved to New York City um, and, and then uh, finished my master's at NYU and uh, then stayed working at NYU for a few years. And while I was doing that, I started freelance writing on the side. Um, for various places about LGBT issues in America. And at some point during that time, I felt like I wanted to bring my writing about queer issues and religion back together. And that since it hadn't gone well the first time, what I really wanted was a mentor. And so uh, I then in 2010 started my PhD in religion, studying under Rebecca Alpert at Temple University. And she had like made her name as someone who was interested, particularly in queer issues in Judaism. Uh, and she was amazing. So I finished my PhD in 2015 and, um, and have been an academic ever since. Fantastic. Um, that's such a cool story. I'm glad that you are that you were able to find mentorship. I talked about this issue a long time ago with um, uh, Melissa Wilcox, where we talked yeah. about her work yes. and the challenges of finding leadership within the field as well. Um, really cool. Um, so you are a the reason I found you is because you are a 2019 fellow for the Sacred Rights Public Scholarship and Religion Group. And I found that group through um, Elizabeth Bucar, who's a professor at Northeastern. So you were a 2019 fellow, it's now 2020. But I'm interested how and why you came to be interested in pursuing this particular opportunity related to public scholarship and religion. That's great. Uh, so the, there were several reasons, actually. When my book came out last year, I was invited to be on, um, an, on an NPR program, not to talk about my book, but to talk about an issue going on in the Methodist Church. And I both enjoyed it and was petrified throughout the experience because I just, it occurred to me, I'd not really been prepared to translate uh, my scholarship for a broader public audience. And um, I wanted more, I wanted direct training on how to do that. And because I had, you know, done freelance writing before, I wanted now to think about how to bring my scholarship to a broader public audience. And so that's uh, what we did. And we, you know, within a, you know, it's a, an intense week long boot camp style training. But by the end of that week, I had written two op-eds that were published the following week. And uh, it was a really great experience and has been um, really powerful for me to uh, think about how scholars who are experts in so many things can uh, make that expertise available to the public. That is so fantastic. And you've taken that the next step with something that you mentioned earlier, your new podcast, The Revealer, and you're also the editor of an online magazine from the same name. Um, what does The Revealer magazine specialize in and how do you see the magazine's place within the field of religious studies and public discourse? Sure. So The Revealer is this great online monthly magazine 
um, that looks at religion and society. So the people who write for The Revealer are a mix of scholars, journalists, and freelance writers. And so we like to think that The Revealer goes deeper than the average publication. So for scholars, it's a great place to write for a broad audience. For journalists, it's a great place to be able to go deeper and offer more nuance than they would in their regular publications. Hmm. So we run things on you know, religion and climate change in India to religion and politics in the U.S. We just did a special issue I'm proud of on religion and sex abuse within and beyond the Catholic Church. So we looked at issues of um, sex abuse in the Catholic Church, which has obviously been covered widely, but for us, we looked in particular at issues of race and how Native Americans have uh, experienced higher rates of um, clergy abuse than other populations, how um, lawsuit payouts to black Americans have been significantly less than to white Americans, etc. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the revealer and it publishes once a month. Nice. Well, and I know that you're the editor and I was looking at the website yesterday and on the website, there's a link that says pitch the editor here and there's a link to, to write to you. What are you looking for in pitches? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so an ideal pitch for me is where I don't have to imagine anything. I know mm. exactly what the story is going to be and how the writer is going to go about doing it. So um, it's clear like why that writer is the person to write about this topic and if they're going to be interviewing people or doing particular research that they have access to do it. So that's, to me, the perfect pitch is where I don't have to read between the lines. We also run some personal essays, which can be really powerful. Um, and those generally should be um, fully written and so that I can see the full essay and then, and then we can go back and forth from there. Nice. Well, I'm curious about the podcast of the same name as well, The Revealer. I know this is brand new. When did you launch? Well, the first episode launched March 31st, and it's um, we're doing one episode each month. We're not as ambitious as the Classical Ideas podcast. Oh, <laughs> well, this is it. Maybe that's more intelligent. Like I go about this in just such a a. a, a full speed ahead rate that uh, I often am worried about my own sanity as well. <laughs> um, so how did the podcast like come about? Like, why did you decide to pursue this as something to further the, you know, public access uh, and, and engagement with public scholarship and religion? Sure. I, we had two main goals um, for starting the podcast. One was we wanted to reach a broader audience because we know that there are many people who prefer podcasts to reading or it's easier for them to consume a podcast while commuting or whatnot than it is to read articles. And, and then second, we wanted to be able to have conversations with the people who write for The Revealer and offer something to our regular readers and subscribers um, a different avenue to explore topics in the in the magazine. So um, each episode is an easily consumable 25-minute podcast and features um, someone who's recently written for The Revealer and allows us to go in different directions than maybe what they wrote about in the article and have more of a conversational feel to it. Wonderful. Well, I, I wish you all the best on the uh, on the podcast endeavor too. It's been such an unbelievable hobby for me for the past three years, and it's just endlessly rewarding. And it's gone in so many different directions that I never could have predicted whenever I started this out of a high school classroom in Missouri in 2017. 
it's just like an endless thing that you can pursue and anything that you're curious about having a conversation about it is just so so rewarding so i'm just so excited to see you doing that i've loved the religion podcasts that have sprung up um like elise morgenstein first and megan goodwin's new podcast bradley onishi's new podcast your new podcast it's just such an exciting time and such an exciting medium as well yeah, that's great. I'm glad to hear it. And it, it's true. I was binge watching a new Netflix show called Unorthodox a yes, few weeks ago. So good. And, and then I happened to receive an advanced copy of a book um, called Hidden Heretics by Ayala Fader about Hasidic Jews in Williamsburg who lead double lives mm-hmm. and thought, oh, now I need to have her on the podcast because I'm watching this show and this arrived. And so, right, so she'll be one of our upcoming guests. I will 100% listen to that. Very exciting. <laughs> so, As far as your academic work, you are known in the field as a scholar of LGBTQ history, and you're the author of a book called Dying to be Normal, Gay Martyrs, and the Transformation of American Sexual Politics from Oxford University Press. You mentioned that came out in 2019, I believe is correct, yeah? Yes. Excellent. So the book examines intersections of religion, sexuality, gender, race, and politics in the United States. How do these topics intersect within the book's main premise? Sure. So the book, Dying to be Normal, looks at how secular LGBTQ activists, by which I mean uh, activists not affiliated with religious institutions or organizations, how secular LGBT activists turned particular people into martyrs as a political strategy to promote assimilation, uh, especially by using Christian images, ideas, and rhetoric to portray some gays, often to the exclusion of queer people of color and trans people as normal Americans. Um, so the, sort of, uh, the, the question that drove my research for the book was, how have the politics of LGBT inclusion been shaped by religion? So the book looks at um, cases where this worked very well. So Matthew Shepard, for an example, is a name that some listeners might know. He um, was a gay college student murdered in 1998 and became the LGBT murder that most instantly um, captured the nation's attention and really no LGBT death since then has received as much attention. Um, And he was a white practicing Protestant um, who had joined only two student clubs in college, one for LGBT students and one for Episcopal students. Uh, And so the ways that he became palatable to a broad public audience has to do with his Protestantism as well as his race. Um, uh, And then the book also looks at examples where activists tried to turn people into martyrs, but with much less success. And those overwhelmingly involved queer people of color and trans people. Um, And so the book looks at people like F.C. Martinez, who was a two-spirit Navajo. Um, So two-spirit, he was uh, assigned male at birth, but took on uh, female roles as, as a teenager. Um, and activists really tried to make uh, Martinez into someone like Matthew Shepard, but it just didn't take. And so the book looks at both success cases and reasons why they were not successful, which often have to do with intersections of race and religion. You mentioned the term two-spirit. That might be a term that some listeners might not be familiar with. Can you briefly kind of say what that means? Sure. Thank you for, for following up with that. So two-spirit is a term that some First Nation people started using in the late 1980s um, to describe people um, 
for whom uh, we might otherwise call gender variant or not heterosexual, a broad umbrella term for Native Americans who um, otherwise might identify as LGBTQ+. And um, for those who take on the Two-Spirit label, it is a way of acknowledging that many indigenous nations, more than 140 we know, had genders beyond male and female prior to European Christian colonialism that were largely erased. And because each nation had its own different language and its own different gender systems, um, they came together in the 1980s to come up with an umbrella term that could honor these various tribes' gender systems that they could all use now as a way of claiming an indigenous identity to spirit rather than using the language of the colonizers. Excellent. That's such a great summary. I learned about that term for the first time in 2012 when I was a part of a research group that was looking at Native American representations within U.S. history standards in high school mm. curriculum. And mm. that was such a fascinating concept for me to explore. I absolutely loved learning about it. So thank you for, I've never talked about it on the show, so I'm so glad that you were able to explain that. Okay. Um, so I was reading a portion of the book yesterday and it was, uh, I was intrigued by a segment about Dan Savage, who's very well known, and his 2010 It Gets Better campaign. And the campaign was massively viral, and you documented some of the greatest moments of the campaign in this piece that I read of yours. What did the It Gets Better campaign do well as a social movement? Sure. That's a good first question for me, because I'm largely critical of it. Um, it so what did it do well? It did what it did well was that it created or enhanced public conversations, particularly among heterosexuals, about the increased the higher rate of suicide among LGBT adolescents, and really put that into a national spotlight. And lots and lots of straight people, like President Obama. Uh, and, and others made their own It Gets Better videos as a way of trying to show solidarity with LGBTQ youth. So what are some critiques of the movement as well? Because this is something that uh, we didn't get a lot of during the viralness of the campaign. Right. So some of the critiques, I mean, so starting where I left off, right? So it allowed people to make It Gets Better videos with out doing anything else to improve the cultural situation for LGBT people. May 10 made a video promising that it gets better, but at that time he had not actually yet done much to improve the situation for LGBT people. Obviously he would later, um, but it didn't require that. It also immediately received lots of criticism from people of color, queer people of color, uh, who said, you know, that the experience of, of getting older doesn't necessarily mean that life will improve. Mm. Um, and that's what I, one of the things that I always thought was strangest about the, the, the promise of it gets better is that the traumas of adolescence um, linger into adulthood and Absolutely. manifest in different ways. And, and, and even more than that, um, there's something strange about this idea that life will improve simply because time marches on. Mm. Maybe it doesn't seem strange now when the Trump 
era plus the coronavirus era that things mm. can get worse. Um, but at the time, and one of the things that intrigued me to write about it for the book was why this was so popular, why so many people accept it as a common sense idea that it gets better. Mm. Um, because it can get worse, it can get become more difficult. And one of the things that I take up in trying to answer why so many people, queer people, straight people, scholars who made their own videos accepted that, uh, was because of a, 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 what I describe as a secular Christian idea that circulates in American culture based on the Christian theological idea of redemptive sacrifice, that good comes out of bad things and that good can come out of trauma. Um, and the way that the persistence of the way in which the crucifixion and resurrection story um, exists and is known, that that gets translated into secular ways so that people really do believe that after trauma will always come better things. Mm. Well, and I was also captured, uh, taken with a moment in the in the piece that you wrote, where a woman said it doesn't get better, and then it was immediately spun in a way that says, well, the fact that she can say it doesn't get better mean it actually is getting better because she's free to say that now. Does that make sense? Yes, it's it's one of the the piece you're referring to um, was when Dan Savage was on NPR's Fresh Air, and he read allowed this criticism by a Latina lesbian uh, who said, you know, I want to tell the youth it doesn't get better, um, but what can happen is this, and then she goes on to explain it, and then he says something like, this is proof that it gets better, because look, now she's able to have a public platform, mm. which wouldn't have happened years ago, and um, right, so it's some, some tone deafness on his part, uh, to translate his particular experience as an upper middle class white gay man into a universal proclamation and promise. Interesting. Okay, so um, moving on a little bit from that, I know that you currently have a new project in the works as well with a mutual friend of mine, uh, Dr. Nora Rubel. How great. At the University of Rochester in New York. Um, yes. So you're a New Yorker. I'm in, I'm in New York. She's in New York. We've got the New York trio going here. So Great. she was on the past podcast. She was on the get on the show before talking about food and uh, Jewish life. And yep. I know you're working on a project with her tentatively titled transparent. And uh, it's about queering the Jewish family on television. Yes. I I'm curious if you can talk to me a little bit about this project. What's exciting for you about this book? Um, and what, what's inspiring you at the moment? That's great. So we are co-editing this book, uh, right? It's currently titled Transparent and Creating the Jewish Family on TV that looks at the Amazon series Transparent as a way of thinking about transgender representation um, and Jews in America in the 21st century. So we have about um, 18 authors who have contributed chapters to the volume and the book looks at this show that just concluded its run in at the end of September 2019 that was widely critically acclaimed, that won all sorts of awards, Emmys and Golden Globes, but that also produced a lot of backlash, particularly from um, transgender Americans and transgender activists. And, and then had the show had its own scandal when the, the lead actor, Jeffrey Tambor, was fired from the show for... 
um, when some trans cast members came forward with allegations of sexual misconduct. So the show is, um, I think, really reflective of a moment that we have to take seriously where you know there were lots of people who loved the show and then lots of people who who said this show is dangerous and so the book looks at all of these issues and then and then why this show about you know a transgender person and this jewish family achieved the type of uh mainstream success that it did when do you think that that book can be expected because that sounds really exciting and i bet a lot of people will be really interested to see what these authors have to say yeah, so um, there's, you know, many people say that editing a book is like herding cats. You have, you know, up to 20 authors. So not and that that's not a, um, I, I mean, no offense to any of the authors. It's just sort of, it's, it, it's a, a slow process. I would say we're, we need the final, uh, all of the authors are currently in their final revisions of each chapter. And so it would be um, about a year and a half from now would be the earliest. Could you see yourself doing a little revealer podcast project related to transparent queering the Jewish family on TV? Oh, definitely. Yes, I have lots of ideas on 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 sort of bringing people from the show to people in the book who've been writing about the show. And exactly. Awesome. Well, Dr. Brett Crutch, you have so many projects in the works. I love it. I love hearing about the magazine. I love hearing about the podcast. I love hearing about your new upcoming book, as well as your book, Dying to be Normal, Gay Martyrs and the Transformation of American Sexual Politics from Harvard University Press. You've got your, um, you got the iron in a lot of fires, sir. Well, you know, it's good to have things to do during a global pandemic. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, um, where can people find you if they want to follow what you are working on? Sure, people can follow me on Twitter at, at Brett Crutch or um, uh, go to therevealer.org to read each issue of The Revealer. I write an editor's letter each month. And then they can also find me on nyu.edu on my faculty page. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. It's been a real pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved the conversation. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.